This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. In other words, what details in the Liturgy of the Word are relevant for doing apologetics? I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at two details that have some relevance for doing apologetics. One of them comes from the Gospel reading, which is the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1-12, through 12, and the other comes from the second reading, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. But both details have to do with one apologetical theme, namely the nature of justification, or the nature of salvation. Now, I'm not going to read the whole gospel passage here. You can do that on your own. Uh, the two Beatitudes, however, that I want to focus on are these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, there in Matthew 5, 3, and blessed are the pure in heart. Matthew 5, 8. What I'd like to highlight first is the intrinsic nature of being poor in spirit and being pure in heart. What I mean by intrinsic nature is the interior character of these Beatitudes, having to do with our interior character, that is to say. Poverty in spirit entails an interior detachment from worldly goods. It's determinative of the order that our will has relative to earthly goods and God. Bottom line, it has to do what's going on inside of us, right? Our soul, our, our, our will, and our mind. Likewise, purity in heart is determinative of the interior ordering of our wills. In the Bible, the heart signifies the inner core of the person from which thoughts, words, actions, and emotions have their origin. As our Lord says in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And what comes from the heart can either make us pure, interiorly speaking, or defiled. In fact, after Jesus tells us that our words come from our hearts, he speaks of such things as defiling a man. And we're talking about moral defilement here, interiorly within our hearts, not ritual defilement. What proceeds from the heart is determinative of our interior character, whether pure or defiled. So poverty of spirit and purity in heart have to do with an interior or intrinsic state of holiness. Now, the two Beatitudes that we're looking at, poverty in spirit and purity in heart, each of which entail an interior state of holiness, are both conditions for entering heaven i.e. the beatific vision. And here is where we can connect the two Beatitudes with the concept of justification. Check this out. In Matthew 12, 36-37, Jesus teaches this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter, or by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The first thing to note is that the condemnation that Jesus speaks of here is eternal damnation, since this is a condemnation that's received on the day of judgment. And now, the opposite of eternal damnation is eternal life in heaven. 
But notice, in this passage, Jesus describes that which is opposite of eternal damnation as a state of being justified, or in other words, of having a right relationship with God. It follows, therefore, that to have eternal life in heaven is to be justified. In fact, it's the perfect or complete state of justification. Now, as I just said, a basis or ground for having eternal life in heaven is our interior state of holiness, that is, poverty in spirit and purity in heart. Jesus makes that clear in the Beatitudes. Since to have eternal life in heaven is to be justified, to have a right relationship with God, it follows that our interior state of holiness is a basis or ground for being justified. And if our interior state of holiness is a basis or ground for being justified finally in heaven, well, then it's reasonable to conclude that such an interior state of holiness would be the basis or ground for being justified here on earth before getting into heaven. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world is this important, right? What relevance does this have to do with apologetics? Well, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters believe that our interior state of holiness is not a basis or ground for having a right relationship with God or for being justified. But this is not true given what we've seen so far that poverty in spirit and purity in heart, both of which entail an interior state of holiness— or a basis or ground for having a right relationship with God in heaven, in other words, to be justified. And moreover, it shows that the Bible is congruent with Catholic teaching, that, a, that the ground for our being in a right relationship with God to be justified is an intrinsic righteousness that's not our own or that we bring about ourselves. No, it's what God brings about in us. Now, it's important to note this. The two Beatitudes that we focused on here don't show that our intrinsic righteousness is the sole ground for our justification, which is what the Council of Trent taught. But it does show that our intrinsic righteousness is at least a basis or ground for our justification. More work would need to be done to show that it is the sole basis or ground for our justification. But at least what this shows us is that the opposing position is not true. The position that denies intrinsic righteousness of have, as having any sort of role to play as being a ground or basis for our justification. And that is the target that this detail can be used to hit in the apologetical discussions. Okay, the second detail that we're going to look at in this episode comes from the second reading, which, as I mentioned earlier, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. The key verse is verse 30, where Paul says this, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Now, some Protestants appeal to Paul's statement that Christ is our righteousness as biblical evidence for the belief that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That's to say God credits to our account the very righteousness of Christ, and it's solely in virtue of his righteousness that we're justified or have a right relationship with God. On this view, 
Our interior state of holiness, our intrinsic righteousness, has nothing to do with our justification. And this view is sometimes called forensic justification. So the question is, does this passage support this view? Well, in short, I'm going to answer no. But there are a few twists and turns before we arrive at that answer. So buckle in and hang on tight. Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, in his book, What Paul Really Said, on page 124, gives one possible response to this Protestant reading of the text, a response that takes the form of a reductio ad absurdum, reducing something to its absurdity. And many have followed suit. He argues that if we're going to say that this passage proves that Christ's own righteousness is imputed to us, well then, we got to be prepared to say that Christ's wisdom is imputed to us as well, along with his sanctification and redemption, since all three are listed along with righteousness. But Christians generally don't speak of wisdom, sanctification, and redemption as being imputed to us. Therefore, the argument concludes, we shouldn't read this text as supporting the view that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now, on the face of it, it seems like a pretty persuasive response. However, some have countered that Wright's argument assumes that the mode of communication for each of the benefits that Christ brings us, wisdom, sanctification, redemption, and righteousness, be the same. Stated again, it assumes that the mode of communication for each of these benefits that Christ brings us is the same. But this is an assumption that some scholars reject. One reason for rejecting this assumption is that the construction of the verse in Greek doesn't require it. It doesn't require the same mode of communication for each of the benefits that Christ brings us. Consider that the single passive verb, genome, translated as has been made, or in some translations become, is completed by four different nouns, wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. For right, the single verb become is governing the mode of communication for each of the nouns, such that if imputation is the mode of communication of one of the nouns, in this case righteousness, well then it must be so for all the others, as Wright argues. But this is not necessarily true. There are several places in the Septuagint where we find the same Greek construction as in 1 Corinthians 1.30. The single verb, gnome, used with two or more noun complements. Yet in these passages, the nouns that complete the single verb each imply a process or mode of becoming that's unique to themselves, even though the multiple nouns complete the single verb syntactically. One example of this is Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. It illustrates this line of reasoning. Here's what we read. On the morning of the third day, there was, genome, in the Greek version there, thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people were in the camp trembled. Notice that there are several nouns that all complete the single genome. Thunder and lightning, a thick cloud, and a trumpet blast. Now, according to Wright's interpretive principle in 1 Corinthians 1.30, the mode in which each of, each of these things are brought about must be the same, because you got the single verb and these different nouns completing it. But surely, the process by which thunder and lightning come about shouldn't be imposed upon the trumpet blast 
<laughs> each have their own proper mode of becoming proper to it, right? Their own proper mode of becoming proper to it. Even though syntactically, they all complete the single verb genome. Here's another example found in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, verse 1. There shall be one flock, one shepherd. There shall be, translates genome. And this single verb has two complement nouns, flock and shepherd. But surely the mode of becoming one flock shouldn't be imposed upon the mode of becoming one shepherd. They are as different as sheep are from a shepherd. So many have pointed out, and I might say it's pretty persuasive, that right is wrong here to assume that the mode in which each of the complement nouns is brought about must be uniform. It's possible that they could have their own distinct mode of having been made, genome, right? Now, keep in mind, <laughs> don't worry, this doesn't mean that Protestants who appeal to this passage in support of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is in the clear. They make a problematic assumption as well. What's that assumption? That the precise way in which Christ becomes these various things for us, or the mode in which each of these things is made or brought about, is not uniform. For example, it's believed that the gift of righteousness is imputed to us in a legal sense, but that the redemption is brought about by Christ buying us back through his death on the cross, each of which is entirely different than making us holy through sanctification. There are different categories here, and we shouldn't impose one upon the other, so it's argued. So notice the assumption is that the mode of communication of these benefits is not uniform. Now, there are only two ways that a Protestant can make this claim. Either A, the text itself reveals that these benefits have their own distinct modes of having been made, or B, the distinct modes are presupposed based on other texts. The former option, A, that doesn't work. There's nothing in the text itself that shows precisely how these gifts are communicated to us. It only says that Christ has become these things for us. But that leaves open the possibility for a variety of interpretations. Take, for example, the benefit of righteousness. It only says that Christ became our righteousness. If we interpret that to mean the gift of righteousness comes from Christ, as we interpret the gifts of wisdom, redemption, and sanctification as coming from Christ, well, then it's ambiguous as to the precise way or mode in which this benefit comes from Christ. It could be by way of imputation. That's the Protestant claim or interpretation here. But it could also come from Christ in the sense that Christ efficiently causes righteousness within us. And in that sense, Christ has become our righteousness. That would be consistent with the Catholic claim. Or it could be interpreted as coming from Christ in the sense that he's the meritorious cause of our righteousness. That's to say, he merited for us the grace that makes us intrinsically righteous. Yet another interpretation that would be consistent with the Catholic teaching. Given that the text itself doesn't, doesn't indicate precisely how Christ becomes our righteousness or our wisdom, redemption, and sanctification— a Protestant cannot claim that each benefit is communicated to us according to its own distinct mode from the text itself. There's nothing in the text itself that illustrates or confirms that these benefits are not communicated 
in a uniform way. And that's the assumption that our Protestant friend is making here. So they can't make that claim that these benefits are communicated in a non-uniform way. They can't make that claim based upon the text itself. Ah, well, with this being the case, our Protestant friend can only make this claim by option B, as we articulated, presupposing it based on other texts. Even D.A. Carson acknowledges this. He writes this, those who are in Christ find that Christ has become for them everything needed for salvation. The precise way in which Christ, quote unquote, becomes these various elements, including righteousness, can only be unpacked by what is said elsewhere. And that comes from his chapter, The Vindication of Imputation, in the book Justification, What's at Stake, page 76. Now, similarly, Matthew O'Leafy, an advocate for the imputation of Christ's righteousness doctrine in response to Wright's, uh, Wright's argument that we just articulated, in his uh, article, Does 1 Corinthians 1.30 Imply Imputed Righteousness? On, you can get that online from Bible and Theology, wrote this in 2018. He states this, It's the well-established Pauline usage of the righteousness terms that suggests that it's given to a sinful person by imputation. The extrinsic features within the context of 1 Corinthians 1.30 operate to confirm it. Notice what he concedes here. It's the well-established Pauline usage of the righteousness terms that suggests it's given to a sinful person by imputation. So he's appealing to how it's used elsewhere and bringing that baggage, so to speak, with him in interpreting 1 Corinthians 1.30, which, by the way, Olifi interprets 1 Corinthians 1.30 as a reference to Christ being, Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. The problem with this option is that it undermines the very appeal to 1 Corinthians 1.30 as biblical support for the idea that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Recall, the reason why we brought this passage up for apologetical discussions in the first place, is because some Protestants appeal to it to justify their view that our justification is grounded in Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. But if a Protestant assumes that the mode in which the righteousness spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 1.30 is communicated to us by way of imputation, well then 1 Corinthians 1.30 can't be used as biblical support for the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It would be the other texts that established the presupposition that would be doing the work here. So it would be a moot point. It would be futile to appeal to this 1 Corinthians 1.30 as biblical support for that idea. We would have to be engaging the other texts that they appealed to, to biblically support that doctrine. So in the end, we can conclude that the appeal to 1 Corinthians 1.30 in support of the imputation of Christ's righteousness doctrine is unsuccessful. Well, that does it for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. We have a single apologetical topic that comes up in different ways from both the gospel and the second reading, the nature of justification. Thank you, my friends, for subscribing to the podcast. Please be sure to tell your friends and family members and loved ones and everybody you know about the podcast and invite them to subscribe as well. I would appreciate that. We would appreciate that here at Catholic Answers. I hope that you have a great fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. God bless you all. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting 
catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.